3: Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Dominic Shewin for Scott Wapner. Today on this Thanksgiving Eve, stocks pushing higher ahead of the Fed minutes later on this afternoon with the S&P 500 regaining a key level. We'll debate the state of the recent rally and whether it can keep going into the year end. Plus, what's working and not working in this market right now? Our investment committee will weigh in today. They are Shannon Sakoshi. Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, and joining me here on set, Jenny Harrington in her red in all her glory. Let's get a check on the markets right now ahead of those Fed Minutes. As you can see there, the Dow is back above the 34,000 mark for the first time since August 16th. The S&P 500 regaining 4,000 for the first time since mid-September right now as things stand the dow is just about flat on the session down 21 points the s p 500 4009 the last trade they're up about one-tenth of one percent the nasdaq composite up about one-third of one percent 11,002.15, and the benchmark 10-year treasury note yield has drifted just slightly lower to 3.74 percent call it right now let's bring in the investment committee i will start with jenny you first because you're staring right at me right now on set I'd like to hear whether you feel as though in this, what has been seasonably strong time of the market over history, can continue to be so. Do you feel constructive?
4: I don't think that we can continue at the pace that we've been at. That seems absurd. So we're up 10 plus percent this quarter. Um, What is it? It's maybe like 11 percent. And so when we're talking about can the rally continue, it's all about magnitude. I read a a strategy piece this morning where they said we think that what happened yesterday is the next leg up to 4,100. Well, that would be wonderful. 4,100 is 2.5 percent from here. So it's not that much. I think, Dom, I think if we end this year not down 26 percent, if we end this year down where we are now, up 2.5%, down 2.5%, I think that we should consider that a massive victory. This year, we have digested and consolidated and processed a tremendous amount of information, and a lot of it bad, like really challenging. We've, we've consolidated valuations. We've digested what the Fed's doing. We've, we've rebalanced our expectations for corporate earnings. So if we end the year around here, fantastic.
3: So Steve, uh, to your point, I mean, to Jenny's point, there's this idea right now that the markets have already priced in a lot of the, I mean, Armageddon's too strong of a word, but there was, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about this idea that the market should be markedly lower, given the Fed's campaign against inflation and the threat of rising interest rates going even further than we thought in the past. Is now in the stability that we're seeing any cause to be more bullish going into what should be a great time of year for the stock market overall?
2: Well, I think it's tough to draw draw a generalization. We've got a few events that are coming up. We've got Fed Minutes today. I would expect them to be, or the market expects them to be, somewhat hawkish. So any relief there could cause the market to go up. Then you've got Black Friday. And typically, the market will have some response to either very strong or very weak Black Friday sales. However, we're getting to that period, it seems, to your point, where perhaps bad news is good news because it means the fed will slow so let's throw out seasonality for a second i think that yes the seasonal bias is for the market trade higher uh, but i think you're in a grace period right now between when you're seeing the fed action actually happen which is them tightening and going to perhaps 50 basis points mid-december and then that period of time where it's taking the Fed action to impact the market. And that's what's going to keep a lid in the market. So we can talk about how the markets, you know, it's rallied 10%, but so what? It's really been running in place, and you've seen rotations. So I continue to be in the camp that, yeah, we could rally into into year-end despite what the Fed says, but then we're going to get the reality of earnings coming down meaningfully, Analyst estimates and strategist estimates haven't reflected in my view and then the valuation is just too high. So I'm not, you know, I'm pretty invested right now relative to where I've been. I've been as low as net short, but I'm just not looking to make a ton of money in the market through the end of the year.
3: I mean, to to that point uh, for viewers on CNBC right now, what we've shown is a cycle of these intraday charts so far today for the Dow, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. And what it is showing is a slowdown in momentum. Now, we weren't up huge to begin with, but it's still marked just in the last 5, 10 minutes or so to see the downside moves that we've seen towards flat lines for the major indices. If if you are on SiriusXM channel 112 listening in on this, every one of these charts has now shown some slowing momentum intraday in like the last 10 or 15 minutes or so. Joe Terranova, if I could kind of get your take on this, this is no doubt, this is tough. This is a holiday-shortened trading week. There is not a lot of liquidity trading volume going on today. There likely will not be that much happening on Black Friday as well either. We can't read that much into it. But is there a sense right now that the sentiment is it is the path of least resistance, Joe, in your mind, to the upside or the downside where we are right now in the market?
1: Well, first of all, Dom, yesterday you had a very broad based rally. Today, you don't have that type of participation today. It's really about technology and in technology, some of the non-profitable uh, components of technology that are rallying. The same could be said for communication services and discre- uh, consumer discretionary. So you don't today have the p- participation from healthcare and energy. I think there's a confluence of factors right now uh, why the market is lifting towards the 200-day moving average. It obviously begins with the expectation that the Federal Reserve will begin to moderate the pace of interest rate hikes from 75 basis points. We're pricing in clearly that it's not going to be 75 basis points on December 14th, that it will only be 50 basis points. Um, In addition to that, you have a technical formation right now that looks somewhat favorable, targeting that 200-day moving average, and then you also have this overall seasonality that, yes, is affecting the market as you're on the other side of the midterm election so i think emotional balance is is the right way to look at this i don't think you should really get overly excited or overly pessimistic about where we are right now i think the concern would be for investors is if in some capacity the federal reserve removes the expectation that they'll be moderating the pace of rate hikes
3: now speaking of the federal reserve i mean interest rates are are no doubt a large part of the market narrative these days we are well off the highs that we saw earlier this year in terms of the benchmark 10 year Treasury note yield, which might be one of the reasons why you're seeing some stability, at least maybe a, a short term floor on the market. Shannon, if you look at the way volatility is playing out right now, I'm looking at the CBOE volatility index. It's of a 21 handle right now. It's certainly not at the 30 some handle. It was just about a month and a half ago, and it's certainly nowhere near the massive highs of 40 plus that we saw during bouts of volatility in the past is that a good or a bad thing?
5: Well, I think it's a it's a good thing in that it reflects the fact that there are, are is less uncertainty or the perception of less uncertainty in terms of path. Um, we've experienced an extreme increase in interest rates this year. Um, even if we continue, if we see a 50 basis point hike in December, the expectations are that that sort of asymmetric outcome, where we see a significant increase in interest rates again next year, you know, that's that's essentially being priced out of the market. And I think that's what you're seeing in volatility. If you think about what that measure really reflects, it's, it's how much do we not know about, say, the first half of next year. Now, there's a cautionary tale there as well in that is the what we don't know is that an, is, does that it, you know, morph into an expectation that we're going to see significant gains for equities in the first half of next year. And I, and I don't want my comment to be misconstrued. That's not my expectation. It's not my view. Um, but I think one of the things that we need to think about is, to Joe's point, there is a confluence of factors that sort of giving the market some lift through the end of the year. Um, I think it, we see a more traditional pattern setting up. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about retail. Uh, but going into next year, there's another thing that you really want to think about, not just, you know, have we seen sort of this peak yield scenario or the expectation of peak yields by January or February? Have we also seen or close to seeing the peak of the dollar and I think that's really what's driving some of the enthusiasm in the market over the last couple of days and and I think that if we get into a more stable range-bound dollar for next year um, I do actually think that could be a catalyst for risk assets but maybe not necessarily a strong catalyst in the first quarter.
3: You're hearing a lot more of that word these days peaking whether it be with regard to interest rates or the value of the dollar or inflation or anything else Uh, speaking of all of those things we're, we're less than just two hours away from the release of those all-important Fed Minutes, uh, framing the discussion that they had about the interest rate hike that we saw this past month. Let's now bring in senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, uh, on this conversation here. Steve, if you look at the way things are playing out right now, this is still a market that's very much macro-driven and central policy-driven by the Fed. Is it fair to say that the Fed Minutes today are going to reflect a maybe slight change in tone, or are we still very much on that rate hike and inflation fighting path?
6: Um, You know, I think you need to always pay attention to the minutes, but I would be surprised if we got a a very different sense of where the Fed is going from these minutes today. And I think the panel really gets it. I mean, I think uh, they are going to step down. Uh, I think they're going to hit 50, and I'll give you some probabilities around that that backs up uh, uh, just how correct Joe is. You're at a, 70% probability of a 50 basis point rate hike. And you can see there, 504 is where we're headed. And the reason is because, ladies and gentlemen, there's another 125 baked in. So it may be slower, but it's not necessarily lower. I think that's the way to think about it. Um, And I think the minutes will reflect that. We'll be watching the minutes, uh, Dom, for any sense at all of, is there a very strongly dovish wing in the committee there that wants to do less Then 5% wants to stop earlier than that. That's more concerned about uh, the financial impact, about the economic impact. But their their case is weakened today, Dom, with the data. I'm I'm sure you saw that pretty stunning durable goods report in which it became clear that somebody forgot to inform the C-suite that we were in the middle of a recession here because they're spending and investing and doing business investment uh, like we're in the beginning of an expansion. At the same
3: time, there's like a mixed narrative, right, because jobless claims are still kind of taking a little bit more in the other direction as well right now. Joe, Joe, I know that you have a question for Steve as well.
1: I do. Steve, first of all, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Uh, but I wanted to focus on the absence Thanks. of dissension within the Federal Reserve, right? There, there seems to be this unity that really didn't exist in prior cycles. You go back and study the 80s right before the Great Moderation, uh, in 1983, you saw significant dissension within the Federal Reserve. Is, is that, in, 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 a, in a perverse way, something that we need to see to know that policy is going to begin to change? How do we think about dissension?
6: So it is a remarkably unified committee, I would say, for the near term. Uh, imagine if your whole panel there was in complete agreement that it was going to be steak for dinner tonight. But next week, dinners, you're not so sure. Maybe, well, actually, it's going to be turkey tomorrow, right? Uh, but not, not so sure about next week. I think that's where the committee is right now. Um, I think they're sure that they want to do 50. They're pretty sure they want to do another 50. Um, and that's the disagreements are all prospectively right now. The issue of how much concern there is about financial instability from rate hikes, about economic fallout, I don't hear anybody. You know, we had... Uh, Mary Daly on uh, not too long ago from San Francisco, you would expect her to be among the more dovish folks. And she puts her range of the Fed uh, of the peak funds rate at 575 to five and a quarter. Well, if that's the dovish end of the uh, of the committee, I wouldn't, you know, uh, hold my breath for uh, the Fed stopping short of. 475, which means it still has work to do. So um, I, I think, Joe, maybe picking up on what you're saying here, things would be more normal if they would separate into hawks and doves. But we're not there yet. We're at a point in time where the Fed is very, very focused on fighting inflation and raising interest rates to do so.
4: Steve, I have a question for you. Something I've been thinking of a lot about is the fact that we are getting closer to the end of the conversation about rate hikes. And at some point, that's just going to be what it is. And we all know it's coming and it's expected. Is the conversation then going to start to move to liquidity? And what's the liquidity and the reduction of the Fed's balance sheet? Like, what's that going to look like for us as investors in terms of being a wet blanket that, over, that lays on top of the market and really keeps the lid on any rally as liquidity continues to come out very methodically?
6: You know, you're, you're more in a position to answer that than I am. There are people who believe that uh, a substantial part of the excess returns of stocks above and beyond what can be explained by the economy or earnings results from the liquidity provided by the Federal Reserve. And there are some very, very stark uh, predictions about what happens to assets or stock values when that liquidity comes out. Um, We're at a point right now where the Fed is removing liquidity from the market, plans to do so for quite some time. Um, But we're also at a point where there looks to be a buffer to that liquidity reduction. And let me explain. There's a point that they talk about where the liquidity reduction becomes binding. And what they mean by binding is where it starts to hurt. There is a sense right now. That there may be as much as one or two trillion dollars that could come off the top of the Fed's balance sheet before it becomes binding, before you get to uh, situations where it starts to really impact the economy. We do have some spotty liquidity issues when it comes to certain markets right now. They do not appear to be those that rise to the level of financial or systemic risk at this point. Um, You know, somebody asked me last night, I was on the train, they said, Steve, what's your biggest worry? I said, my biggest worry is waking up in the morning and hearing that the Treasury market doesn't clear. After that, any other news is just gravy. I don't really care. So every morning you wake up and the Treasury market is clearing, I'm okay with that. That's fine. And if we go home today and the Treasury market clears and wake up Friday morning and it clears, that's all good. I think you're right to focus on liquidity. doesn't seem to be a big issue right now. It may be an issue later for, for later next year uh, when it may have a binding effect on market valuations.
3: All right, Steve Leisman, we know you'll have a busy afternoon on this uh, Thanksgiving Eve watching those Fed Minutes. We'll see you later on this afternoon. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Let's now pivot to one of today's big winners in the market right now. That's Deer, leading the S&P 500 following a beat on the top and bottom lines. The company is also raising prices on farm equipment and it forecasts sales gains in the year ahead. Now, industrials are outperforming over the last month that sector up nearly 15%. You've got names like Johnson Controls, United Rentals, so-and-so up about 30% in that period. Uh, Joe Terranova, maybe we'll start with you on this conversation mm-hmm. since you actually own shares of Deere. Was this a good report in your mind? Do you want to keep holding it? Do you want to add to it? Do you want to trim positions? Anything change with regard to your investment thesis on Deere?
1: You no, know, you're, you're happy with the report. I understand a lot of uh, high expectations were built into the stock price ahead of earnings. But you want to stay with it because you're in the midst of what really looks to be more of a secular, bullish environment for agriculture overall. And in that environment, the replacement cycle for an aging farm equipment population is going to be accelerated significantly. Also, the implementation of autonomous tractors, um, that will once again be significantly populated throughout the agriculture industry, it's it's a reason to stay with this company. So the ag space right now, moving into 2023, whether it's John Deere, Archer Daniels Midland, Mosaic, Corteva, a name that we've mentioned on air recently, I know Stephanie Link owns it. Uh, these are all agriculture names that I think the investors want to stay committed towards because I don't know when you're going to see a little bit of a receding in a lot of these strong tailwinds that are emanating for agriculture overall. You know, part of
3: that report also cited the strong demand for that construction and farm equipment as well. Also, this idea that infrastructure investment and spending is going to pick up, which helps their construction machinery equipment there. Shannon, uh, uh, on the industrial side, you're an owner of many of these names as well. I wonder, is it is it cat deer that 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 is the best idea for you and industrials? or are you looking elsewhere maybe aerospace?
5: Yeah, I think overall, I think there is really to, to Joe's comment, a strong secular tailwind for agriculture, but I also think that there is just a strong secular tailwind for capital expenditure, real fixed asset investment. I think we're moving into you know, the next phase, um, whether it's the reshoring of manufacturing or whether it's creating just overall greater productivity and efficiency um, in a number of different sectors or, or subsectors of the industrial sector. And so I think when I look at sort of our basket, the theme that we're looking at is that productivity and efficiency improvement. It. Names like Rockwell Automation, for instance, names like Honeywell, um, and then thinking about it in terms of how do we move those goods? So with the Union Pacific, I think there's a lot of different ways that you could play the industrial sector as you go into 2023. But I think that there is, you know, likely going to be this pickup in capex, and I think that it's at, you know, both the private and public level and it's not just here in the united states we're going to see this as a global trend so although we have some concerns obviously about a moderating global economy and the potential for you know what is in our view likely a shallow recession 23 24 um, i think this does have longer term trends and i think that you can play it either with a basket, a um, great example of a, a part of a, an ETF that has an agricultural basket is GUNR, um, but you could also play that in terms of picking some of these uh, industries within the industrial sector and, and really you know expressing that theme in a number of different ways.
3: So one pick that's up on the screen right now that, that you mentioned is Honeywell. And Steve Weiss, I know this is a name that you've been involved with in the past. Uh, have you been adding to that position for, for Honeywell, and if so, why?
2: No, I, I mean, I bought it recently within the last month. Um, I like it. I like the fact they're focused on automating manufacturing going forward. Uh, and uh, I think they've got a phenomenal CEO. So I'm not adding to it here. I actually had to hold my nose to buy it because it's not cheap, but uh, but they're in the right spot. Um, what's surprising to me today is that Bungie and Mosaic, which I, which I own both, Are down marginally on the day you would think that they would benefit from some tailwinds that are also helping deer. but the biggest surprise is you know over the last week or so has been capex spending I would have thought that looking at the very real potential of a recession that you would have seen CEOs pull back and save for a rainy day admittedly corporate balance sheets are really flush with cash and that they haven't been spending a lot through the entire cycle building that cash nest egg So I would expect, though, that for that to slow down. And there aren't many recessions where industrials do particularly well as you're going into them. So so I'm a little cautious on the space. Clearly, the money's gone there, not so much for the fundamentals, which have been mixed, frankly. But because they've gone out of tech, tech had been such a big portion of the S&P, they had to find a home. So they're going to the next liquid place to go, and that's industrials. So I wouldn't read into that as any prediction that this is going to be a sustainable cycle through a declining economy, because it won't be.
3: All right. Industrials certainly a key focus, given what's happening with the deer shares today. All right, guys, thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, gearing up for the crucial holiday shopping season, we've had a wave, a slew of retail earnings over the last week or so, roughly. So what's working right now and what's not working, the committee has their take On those positions and the retail trade heading into the holiday shopping season, stick around. Halftime is back in just two minutes with the markets just about
1: flat for the Dow. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more.
0: B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain.
3: Welcome back to the Halftime Report. We've had a flood of retail earnings as of late, and the holiday shopping season is getting underway in earnest on Friday. The retail sector on pace for its worst year since 2008, but a number of stocks are hitting new highs. So what's working and what's not in retail right now? Jenny, I'm going to turn to you first. Ross Stores is working. In fact, it's right now going to probably hit a 52-week high if it hasn't already done so at this point. Why Ross Stores in that retail trade?
4: Well, it's interesting. So Ross Stores is in our discipline growth strategy. And this is, um, so I actually, if you don't mind, Dom, I want to talk about Ross Stores, American Eagle, which we just sold, unfortunately, before yesterday when it was up so much, and Foot Locker. We own all three of those. And if you look at them, they're interesting. Ross Stores is actually only up 1% year to date but it's up 40% in the last month. Um, American Eagle down 40% year-to-date, up 50% in the last month. Foot Locker is down 15% year-to-date, up 15% in the last month. And so what I think the theme here is, is bigger than any one store. The theme is that retail overall, and this is why we bought American Eagle back in May and Foot Locker back in February. The theme is that the shares of these companies have been punished as if the consumer was just going to lay down and die and never spend any money again. And guess what? Like, American consumers are extremely resilient, and they continue to spend. Now, they're not doing that well. In fact, Ross Stores, Joe, you and I were talking about this on Friday when I was on, and so Ross Stores, um, it's not really that great. In fact, they had 160 basis points of margin contraction, 5% lower same-store sales, but... It was so much better than everyone expected. So one of the things Joe and I were talking about on Friday was the fact that, you know, is, is discount retail where you want to be in this kind of environment with a recession pending? Well, I would say yes, but the stock is already up 40% in the last, you know, what did I say, month? And it's up from $70 a share in July. So what I think is on all these retailers, I think the super ultra low-hanging fruit was there in the summer and you missed it. You're not going to get up 40% from here and up 30% from here. But to some degree, there is still low-hanging fruit. And so American Eagle, I'm super bummed that we had to sell. It's because they cut their dividend last quarter and we had to exit it eventually. It's being replaced. I'll tell you what I'm replacing it with when I'm done next week. But why are we still holding Ross? And why are we still holding Foot Locker? Because there's more upside. Now, those two are different. Ross is expensive. It's trading at 20-plus times earnings. We will probably use this as a source of funds. Foot Locker, still cheap still a big foreign change dividend yield, still buying back shares. So you really need to start to call through. You know, they all had this move, but now you need to start to pick and choose, really dive down into management teams. And that's where you see Target versus Walmart, who's handling their inventories better. So it's gonna start to get, it's gonna get challenging. You know, all the ships have risen in the last couple weeks, but now we need to be a lot more careful. You're not going to get that big pop. Again.
3: Shannon, I, I want to bring you into the conversation here because you own a, no, a number of the names that we tend to focus on intensely during the holiday shopping season, among them Best Buy, also Costco as well. And you can kind of throw Home Depot in that mix there as well. Are, are you still bullish well, on that, given the moves that we've seen for some of those names? Uh, Best Buy in particular, given what we've seen with earnings And, of course, consumer electronics being such a big part of the holiday shopping season.
5: Yeah, well, let's let's put aside, you know, maybe December's not when you buy plywood. So let's take Home Depot out of the conversation at least. But um, let's talk about Best Buy and Costco, because I think that there are, you know, we don't have a lot of retail exposures. The retail that we've that we've chosen to invest in has been very specific. Best Buy's valuation to Jenny's point about Footlocker is so undemanding um, that mm-hmm. our expectation was is that even if we saw a decline in terms of same store sales, which we did, ten and a half percent same store sales decline this quarter. However, expectations were for thirteen percent, eleven percent same store sales decline for this year. They have now projected ten percent, so it's just better than expected. It's not great. But it's better than expected. And I think with Best Buy, what you're seeing is you're seeing they are accustomed to managing their inventory in the consumer electronics space. And so unfortunately, they are going to be hindered from a margin perspective because Target and Walmart have not shown to be quite as disciplined from an inventory management perspective in electronics. and So there'll still be some kind of compression from promotional activity from those stores that will affect Best Buy's margins. But just a little fact. The computing revenue this quarter, um, up 23% from the fourth quarter of 2019. So that consumer demand is still there. It has not rolled over and died yet. Best Buy is not yet out of the woods, but I think that there are some trends. The last thing that I want to just make sure that I note is that there's this seasonality that Joe talked about earlier, where we're seeing more seasonal, normal behavior is in retail. Think about last year. All of that activity was pulled forward to the beginning of the quarter because we thought we weren't going to be able to get those goods. That actually bodes well for for November and December comps.
3: All right. I mean, another company that saw a lot of demand in a pull forward type effect was Dick's Sporting Goods. That's a name, Steve Weiss, that that, that you're definitely involved with.
2: Yeah, so um, I was out of Dick's for a long time and I bought it back when it traded down below par on Target's numbers. And to me, it's compellingly cheap it's less than 10 times earnings, it's got great management, with the exception of one quarter, uh, has executed above and beyond what their guidance was, and that contrasts with some of the others, particularly Target, which missed three quarters in a row, and incredibly is still selling at a 28 times multiple. I don't know what people are thinking. What they're thinking is the stock's probably gonna go up because it always bounces, and you know what, it probably will, because people just aren't looking at the fundamentals. Ross Stores hey it's had a great move but it was trading off of let's forget let's face it free money multiples and 26 times earnings it should be a source of funds lululemon ridiculous multiple they continue to execute love the product every time i walk to a store it's crowded so maybe it'll hold the multiple but i think there are values down there now without the dividend i don't think Locker's won Nike is going direct to consumer. That's hurting them a lot more than it's hurting Dick's. So I think you got to be careful where you are. And as you go into the holiday season, Dick's Sporting Goods just offers broad gifts at reasonable price points and is the only player, the only dominant player in the sector. Sure, you have ASO, you have a couple of others, (laughs) Hibberts, but... Dix is the major domo in the space, which means they get the best pricing and the best margins. So that's why I'm there. I'm being very selective in, uh, in what I do in retail.
3: And that retail space is, of course, one we're going to watch very closely in the coming days and weeks here. All right. Thanks very much, folks. Coming up on the show, Tesla's rallying today, but it's dropped 35 percent in just the last two months. Is the stock becoming a value play, if you can call it that? We're going to debate that in our call of the day next on Halftime. Keep it right here.
7: Carbon and emissions technology startups are attracting big venture capital funding this year. Companies that help reduce carbon emissions have raised nearly $11 billion through the third quarter, according to PitchBook, on pace to top last year's record. The total number of VC deals reached a record high in Q3 of 231. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? Is it
4: having more stories to share or time to give?
7: Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's our CNBC News update this hour. President Biden is calling on Americans to come together as a nation and take greater action to curb gun violence after another horrific and senseless act. His words, police say a Walmart manager shot and killed six employees in the break room of a Virginia store last night and then took his own life. Motive unknown right now. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says the country will rebuild its infrastructure after a new round of Russian missile attacks caused widespread power outages. He says Ukrainians are an unbreakable people. A cyber attack targeted the European Parliament just hours after its members voted overwhelmingly for a resolution that calls Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. High levels of external network traffic, basically, have put the website of the European Parliament just out of commission. It's what's known as a distributed denial of service attack. We'll be watching that closely. Dom.
3: All right. Contessa Brew with the latest headlines there. Thank you very much. Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas is out with a new note today on Tesla, saying it's approaching their $150 bear case scenario The firm reiterates its overweight rating and raises the question whether there's a value opportunity emerging. It is our call of the day. Jenny, we'll look at you first because we're talking Tesla and this is a stock that you have some very strong feelings about.
4: I do. I have strong opinions. So as, a, as someone who leans towards value manager, I can get pretty darn creative with calling something a value, right? a value stock. And, and if we look at what the real value, what the real idea of value investing is, it's buying something at a discount to the future cash flows that saying the stock is worth less right now than those future cash flows. I told Dom in the break, and I'm happy that he's letting me say it on air, I think you'd pretty much need to be on hallucinogenic drugs to make any viable argument that Tesla is a discount right now or is it a, is a value stock or at a great value right now. If you look at Ford and GM, they trade it like six times earnings. Even if you look at next year's Tesla's earnings, that's $6 a share, there's no version of this that's value. So if you want to call it a growth stock, and if you want to be super speculative and say, hey, that $6 is going to grow to $60, like, fine, you know, you go dream, go get back into the, you know, high atmosphere and the fumes and all of that and call it a growth stock. But you cannot call it a value stock. So Joe play.
3: okay, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, Joe, this is this is not a, 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 a an opinion solely of, of Jenny's over here. There are a lot of folks out there who, who don't feel as though even with a shaving of half a, its value, in the course of the last several months that it's a value oriented pick but I wonder in the broader sense of Tesla in that consumer discretionary trade Joe do we feel as though it's indicative of anything sentiment wise or direction wise about the market when it comes to consumer spending and discretionary overall
1: well first of all let's understand that Adam Jonas called it a value opportunity and a value opportunity is not universal to all investors A value opportunity is specific to an individual, a portfolio, or a strategy. So collectively, from a risk management standpoint, you say to yourself, here's Tesla, a consumer discretionary company that over the last three years has had annualized sales growth at 37%. And the other signature tailwind that it had was incredibly strong momentum. Now what has happened? What has happened in the last three months is that that momentum factor has been decimated. They've lost the momentum factor. All they have is the sales growth. And pushing against that on the other side is that you've got a stronger US dollar and only 44% US revenue growth. You've got a company that, on a valuation basis, currently has a PE somewhere in the mid-50s and a high beta relative to the market. So all right, you fall back upon, as an individual investor, is this the right characteristic of a company that you could fit into your portfolio if you could accept the degree of a little bit of a higher beta exposure and a higher valuation then yeah it's probably going to be a value opportunity if not you're going to look elsewhere within the consumer discretionary space and find opportunities in names like tjx walmart or ulta beauty or even tractor supply
4: I one more thing real quick on this? I think one of the mistakes that I see people making not just on Tesla but across the board right now, and that's why I want to highlight this, is saying it used to be at 300, now it's down 50%. Guess what, guys? It never should have been at 300, just like Peloton never should have been at 178. And I think one of the most damaging things that we can do as investors is say because it used to be here it should be there again so I think we all need to start fresh with with what is it at today and does it deserve to be there today so this is just broader you know And this is my PSA of the moment don't think because it was at 300 it deserves to be there
2: yeah yeah one one last word here Jenny Yeah, I agree, Jenny, and I said that before, that that was the free money multiple. What has been mentioned is competition has arrived. Mm -hmm. That's always been the bear case on Tesla, and it is there now. It is there from every auto company in the world, and Tesla styles haven't changed since inception. Guess what has changed? All the other cars. So now with the sliding, gets very tough. There's no capital-intensive company, despite their ROE, that should be selling at this kind of multiple period particularly with a very distracted CEO who singularly is responsible for driving the workforce so hard to make the moves that they've made in terms of supply chain and production. So I said it a year ago, sure. the best days are behind Tesla. That continues to be true. All
3: right. Uh, we're, we're getting some spotty audio on Steve Weiss. We're going to try to fix that in the, in the coming <laughs> break over here right now. Uh, anyway, God, not, I, will, I will point this because we're balanced here. City <laughs> also upgraded the stock, by the way, from a sell to a neutral rating and up their price target as well. That's part of the whole Tesla conversation today. Anyway, up next on the show, as we sort out Steve Weiss's audio, check out the divergence between oil prices and energy stocks over the past month. So what is it signaling and what does it mean for the red hot energy trade overall? The committee will debate how much more room energy has to run or will it stall out? That debate coming up, halftime is back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Oil continues to slide. Meanwhile, the energy sector is continuing to carve out gains. Shannon, what gives? How much longer can this divergence last?
5: Uh, It's a really interesting scenario because one of the things that you think about is how much of what's happened in the energy sector in terms of gains have been driven by this demand for oil, and then how much do we see a, a, a change in the equilibrium between supply and demand over the next couple of years. We are c- fundamentally undersupplied in, in, in energy right now. And you think about the oil market, whether it's OPEC plus or what's happening in Ukraine, uh, You know, we are at a, in a situation where we don't have probably enough to meet even modestly lower demand over the course of the next couple of years. The other reason that the energy sector has been so popular is not just um, this realization that we see this kind of increased uh, or lower supply against even consistent demand. It's the margin, it's the profitability, it's the valuations that are being delivered by the energy sector. So I think you'd have to see a confluence of factors, a number of events to really take the wind out of the sails. But as far as over the next, you know, say three, four, five months, there really isn't a significant catalyst just from a seasonal perspective to see a sharp decline in energy prices. And so even though we've seen some um, weakening in terms of pricing, these companies are still able to produce Great margin um, and, and strong top line revenues, even at these levels.
3: You know, I mean, we've spoken so much about energy with regard to uh, its relationship on the oil side of things. But Nat gas these days is obviously a very big part of the discussion. We're heading to the winter months here around the, around the world in the in the northern hemisphere. There's, you know, possible sanctions on Russia with price caps going into a play. I, I, Joe, the Nat gas trade is one that is not for the faint of heart, not for the weak of heart. Is it something that you want to be involved no. in right now, natgas?
1: I, I think you do. It's up 100 percent year to date. It's up 20 percent this month. Yes, it's known as the widowmaker. Um, what you're seeing uh, today is that the weather forecasts, looking out 10 days from now, both in Europe and in the U.S., are calling for significantly colder weather. Beginning December 3rd in the U.S., uh, the the entire lower 48 is going to be in the midst of below normal temperatures europe very strong cold temperatures as well in december as well so you're coming up on expiration next week for the spot month believe it or not this is hard to say dom but you're seeing a lot of short covering in natural gas natural gas was below four dollars and eighty cents on october 24th here we are right now with spot gas up above seven fifteen. so heading into a winter season the weather is going to impact spot natural gas pricing and during those weather months you do want to have exposure in natural gas through equities, whether it's EQT, RRC, Southwest and Energy to name a few. All right, some of the big exploration and production EMP companies in natural gas.
3: All right, thanks very much for those thoughts, Joe, uh, and to Shannon as well. Up next on the show, we've got Mike Santoli joining us for his midday word. Keep it right here, Halftime is back after this. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Senior markets commentator, Michael Santoli, joins us now from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. It's a slower day-ish. But what's on your radar?
8: It is, uh, Dom. Uh, quiet as you might expect. Market kind of levitated yesterday. It was really playing to the script that we've become accustomed to of a typical Thanksgiving week type action. What's interesting about the levels we're getting up to here is it's where pretty soon you're going to have to really separate the outlooks of bulls and bears. If you go back six or seven weeks, Market deeply oversold. Everyone knows you can often find a pretty good low in October. Both longer term bulls and bears were able to say we should rally here. We're primed for a bounce. It's going to look like we did over the summer. Uh, And now we're up at levels or getting toward them. Let's say another two or three percent in the S&P 500 where you have to decide whether it's really a sell the rally environment or, in fact, if you could have had a durable low. Rates have been pretty friendly here. We have this sense out there that we've kind of priced in the likely uh, next several months of of what the Fed has for us. And the economy hasn't really fallen apart yet. Um, I do note this morning, Dom, that you got a little bit of a bad news is good news reflex response from the slight uptick in jobless claims and the weak purchasing managers index report so that's a pattern you want to keep an eye on as we head into the jobs report a week from friday
3: i mean it's going to be a big one for sure but i mean this idea mike with stock market volatility that that's pretty much collapsed in just like the 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 last four to six weeks is it is, is it a bad setup or is it just playing out with this whole seasonably strong time of the year narrative that we've been talking about for years at this point
8: I don't think it's as simple as saying it's a bad setup and people are complacent and therefore uh, it's going to be a rerun of that nasty sell-off we got from mid-August. Clearly, you know, we're going to get some gut checks down the road. But uh, because of the seasonal factors, because we're that much closer perhaps to what the, you know, the, the, the Fed's going to be slowing down, if nothing else, I agree with everybody else that there looks like there's downside to 2023 earnings forecast. But we've already had $20 come out of the S&P forecast. For 2023. This process has been underway for a while. The market's been trying to absorb it in the in the way that it can. So you can argue that it's it's priced for uh, more good stuff than we're likely to get. But I think that remains to be seen.
3: All right. Maybe things pick up with some action around the Fed minutes when they get released later on this afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Mike, I know you'll be watching that closely. Thanks very much. We'll see you later on this afternoon. Uh, keep it right here. We got final trades coming up on the halftime report coming up next. We've got some interesting picks coming up. All right, time now for final trades. Jenny Harrington, you first.
4: All right, I'm sticking with my theme of you can't make me a bull, you can't make me a bear right now, but you can make money. So I'm giving you B&G Foods. B&G Foods just reset the dividend. It was highly anticipated. And so, so the stock really got beaten down because of that. Where you are right now is a 5.8% yield. I think as supply chains continue to normalize, as inflation comes down, the stock stabilizes, the company stabilizes, earnings improve, you get 5.8%. All
3: right, Steve Weiss.
2: Yeah, Rivian on the short side. So I shorted Rivian during the during the show. At 25,000 vehicles that they may produce this year, that's a million dollars per vehicle if you look at the market cap, 25 billion. This is lunacy. They'll lose 18 bucks this year. They're going to lose money as far as you could see. The world's got to come to realize that these stocks don't work anymore. Yeah, it's come down a lot. It's going to go down a lot more.
3: All right, Shannon.
5: Netflix ad-supported tier could bring a billion and a half in, in revenue in 2023.
3: And Joe Terranova.
1: Long visa. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone.
3: Happy Thanksgiving to everybody here, too. Thank you so much. We'll see you on Friday. That does it for the Halftime Report.
1: You've been listening to CNBC's
2: Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.